there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. You know that the topic of these talks is loneliness. And it's a subject which I would hardly have thought of writing a book about. I certainly don't consider myself an expert in any sense of the word, but it has amazed me over the years to find how many letters I get from lonely people. And I finally come to the conclusion that everybody is lonely in some way or other. We all have an area into which nobody else seems to enter. And although probably many of you would say, well, I would not call myself a lonely person, perhaps by the time I get finished you'll understand that I am referring not only to a personal condition, but also to a human condition. I think back a number of years to one midnight. I was sitting on a plane, and off the right wing of the plane, the moonlight was flooding the field of clouds, and everything inside the plane was dark and silent. It was about, well, as I said, it was moonlight, and it was midnight. And occasionally the stewardess would walk up and down the aisle, maybe taking a pillow to somebody or a blanket. And there was a couple, I assumed a married couple, sitting next to me, a man and a woman. As far as I could tell, they were both sound asleep. Everybody else seemed to be sound asleep, but I couldn't sleep. The seat was too narrow. There was too little leg room for somebody as long-legged as I am. The pillow didn't fit. Nothing was comfortable. And suddenly there was a tiny click, and the woman next to me had taken out a cigarette, and the man had clicked his lighter. He reached his hand over, and in the light of the lighter, I could see the woman's hand. And that's really all I could see. It was just like a tiny spotlight, a very simple gesture, which meant virtually nothing, I'm sure, to them. But it just happened that I had been a widow for about a year at this point, and that little gesture just reminded me, like a sharp pang in my heart, of a life which was lost forever to me, as far as I knew at that point. Just the sense of a man and a woman, and his hand reached over in a very tiny gesture to help her. And I could see the hairs on the back of his hand as he lit the lighter. And I thought of the hand that had been so well known to me, a hand with square fingernails, a little bit squarer than his, a hand a little bit more muscular than this man's, but a hand that I had thought of as very strong, also very capable for drawing. He was a builder and a wrestler and also a fairly good artist, and it was very tender sometimes for caressing. And I had been a widow just about long enough to have forgotten exactly how that felt. Now, 
At the same time, I was realizing how very fortunate I was to be a widow rather than a never-been-married person. And I realized what a blessing it was to have been married to this man, Jim Elliott, for those very brief 27 months that we had. But it was a moment when that sudden tide of loneliness just swept over me. And I dare say that everybody listening listening to me at this moment has had an experience like that, a poignant, perhaps just instantaneous moment, when you had that feeling of being cut off from something or someone or some place that made you feel lonely. Now that's merely a personal experience, and I think of 15 years later when I was a widow again. And in that particular case, I had had to watch over a period of 10 months as my second husband had died of cancer, had to watch him being taken apart month by month, as cancer does. And I think I had done almost all of my grieving in advance, so that by the time he died, it was almost a rejoicing, because I knew that he was released from terrible pain. He had been in the point where he was yelling with pain. And I thought of the wonderful words of that hymn, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. There's one stanza that says, Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. What a wonderful name for Jesus Christ, the death of death. And so it was with a tremendous amount of gladness and joy that I attended his funeral service, mixed at the same time, don't get me wrong, with devastating grief and the sense of bereavement that any widow would experience. But there were no tears, and I'm sure that there must have been people walking out of that funeral thinking that woman must be made of cement. But I've had this experience twice myself of being the widow at the funeral and seeing other people just uncontrollably sobbing. And I've thought about that a lot, and I think that the explanation is fairly simple, that the person who has suffered the deepest loss is also the person whom God has provided with the most grace. And the peace that passes understanding, I have discovered, is a very real thing. But, having said that about my husband's death and funeral, It was only about two months later that I was in the grocery store one day, just doing my routine grocery shopping, and as I went to pick a can or a box of something off the shelf, I suddenly found myself sobbing. I was very thankful that there wasn't anybody else in that particular aisle at that particular moment, because I thought, what would I say to them if they came up and said, is something the matter? Can I help you? Would it have made any sense to them in the grocery store If I had said, yes, my husband died three months ago, what could they have said, or two months ago, whatever it was? That sudden tide, it just swept over me and overwhelmed me for for no understandable reason at that moment. Well, you know what I'm talking about. We all have these personal experiences. But then there's also what I might call a generational experience. And I've been reading a very fascinating book about the baby boom, 
And I think that it's understandable that people are conscious of loneliness now in a way that perhaps generations before them never were. I'm not a baby boom generation, obviously. I'm much earlier than that. But the transience, the mobility, the fragmentation of our lives, divorce, the necessity to move from one place to another because of the short-term kinds of jobs that people get, and all kinds of factors which make for discontinuity, I think, have caused loneliness in perhaps an, almost like an acute disease or epidemic. So there's that generational form that loneliness also takes. And there's also what I might call the human experience. And if you want a title for this first talk, it would be, we are lonely because we're human. It is the human condition. It's the human predicament. And St. Augustine said, O Lord, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And I think that gets us right down to the very core of the reason for loneliness. Because basically there is in every one of us a created vacuum, created by God, that absolutely nothing else will ever fill. Now what can we do about it? That is the predicament, that's the human predicament. What exactly can we do about it? Well, I remember a few years ago when my husband and I were on a speaking trip together in some little cow town west of the Mississippi, I can't remember where it was, a fairly uh, sort of hick town, I guess you might call it. But we were staying in one of your usual run-of-the-mill motels, and it happened to be Saturday night. And there was a thundering, screeching music, well, I guess you call it music, coming out of the bar. And in order to get to the dining room, we had to go more or less through the bar. And I noticed that there were a few men standing around, there were a few couples sitting at tables, but at the bar there were at least four women sitting alone with elbows on the bar, hands, fingers grasping the rims of glasses, legs very generously displayed toward the audience, as it were, sitting around the bar. And as we stood there, I just watched, and my heart went out to those young women because I could see that their eyes were just ceaselessly scanning the room, looking for what? Well, I don't think that they had a date that they were supposed to meet there. They were lonely, and they didn't know what else to do but go to a bar. I'm not sure whether it was exclusively a singles bar, but there they were looking for that soul somewhere, desperately hoping that there might be that person that would meet their need and that would give them at least, perhaps, for a few moments, a little happiness. I picked up a magazine on a, ma on a flight, one of those flight magazines that has to be my last resort when I've exhausted all the reading material I've taken along with me, and there was an article there about Toronto and singles in Toronto, something like that. I was amazed at the list of things that singles can do in order to find a mate. It's going to cost you money, and it's going to take you time. 
But in addition to the singles bars, there were cruises, there were dating services of all sorts, there were dance clubs, there was something called culinary courtship, in which for a very fancy price, you could go to a different progressive dinner every couple of weeks and have your first course with one group of people and your second course with the next, and etc. Then there, were, there was a story about a hostess in Birmingham who paired all her guests as they came in the door by handcuffing them. And they were forced to spend the rest of the evening together. She did make a concession if they had to go to the restroom, then she would unlock their handcuffs. But she had uniformed guards standing around to make sure that nobody took their handcuffs off. So they were stuck together for the whole evening. And the interviewer had asked, had asked the question, have there been any marriages out of these combinations? And she said, uh, sadly, no, I, I don't think it ever has really worked. Well, right near where I live, there's a very large, huge grocery emporium that advertises the meat market, M-E-E-T. And there's one night a week dedicated to singles shopping. And presumably, you can meet somebody at the meat market. <laughs> to me, it's a tragedy. And of course, I haven't even mentioned the singles columns that are just so pathetic. You can bury yourself in bus busyness. You can frantically rush around in social life. You can take drugs. You can take alcohol. You can commit suicide. But the world doesn't really have an answer. I know that there are all kinds of seminars and books and how to do it and endless talk shows on the subject. And that's not really what I came here to do tonight. I want to take you back to some basics. That malaise, that generational disease is something for which I do believe Jesus Christ has an answer. I want to read you from this book that I've been reading on the baby boom. And the author, whose name happens to be Landon Jones, says that in nostalgia, the baby boomers have found a haven from anxiety and a means of reaffirming stable identities badly shaken during the passage from adolescence. It bears the same relation to anxiety that aspirin does to a headache. It offers temporary relief. For the baby boomers, it was not that the past was so wonderful, it was that the present is so troubling. And then he goes on to say that one demonstrator during the 1960s student demonstrations at Columbia University said that the only place that he felt he could talk to anybody at all and share something and be together and understand was at a baseball game. And this author's believes that that may account for the overwhelming popularity of baseball. It's one of the very few things that people have in common. It gives them a correlative of childhood, a, something that is stable and predictable and timeless. Well, I think that I have a better answer. of something that is stable and predictable and timeless. How does a Christian look at this whole matter of loneliness, which is a form of suffering? 
Do we have anything to say? Now, for some people, Christianity is a very superficial label, and it doesn't change their lives at all. But I come to you as one who grew up in a home where Christianity was a seven-day-a-week business. Both of my parents were strong Christians, and their Christianity was not only talked about, but it was walked and lived in front of us. We had a little brass plate over the door of our house, over the doorbell button, and it said, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. To my parents, Jesus Christ meant everything. And I speak to you not only as one who is very grateful for having been given that kind of Christianity from my earliest memories, but also as one who does know a little bit about loneliness. I spent 11 years in the jungle of Ecuador, most of them single, two years and three months as a married woman, but I was a single missionary before I married my husband Jim Elliott, and then I was a single missionary for almost eight years after he died. And I speak to you not only as one who believes that Jesus Christ can make a difference, and as one who has experienced loneliness, but as one who really does believe that the things that I'm wanting to say to you in this series really do work. And I'm one who likes to go way back to the basics. And what I discover is that I was created by somebody for something. And when God created us, as the first chapter of Genesis tells us, he says about everything that it was good or it was very good. But then there is one thing in his creative activity about which he said it was not good, and that was that the man should be alone. And I think most of us would agree with God on that, that it is not a good thing for a man to be alone or for a woman. But before Adam and Eve sinned, there was a, there was a perfect life in the Garden of Eden. Two perfect people in a perfect place in a perfect relationship to God. And so although they were two separate and autonomous individuals, they were created by God, and they had a unity in their marriage. God said the two should be one flesh. But you know what happened in the third chapter of Genesis. That perfect relationship with God, and therefore the perfect relationship with each other, was severed because of sin. And we've been in an awful mess ever since. And so the experience of solitude became an experience of deprivation. There's a big difference between loneliness and solitude. I think most of us would think of solitude as not a painful one. I love to stand on the balcony of our house where we can look out over the ocean at night and look up at the moonlight and see the moonlight on the white caps and hear the thunder of the surf against the rocks. That kind of solitude I love, and it doesn't carry the connotation of pain. But loneliness always carries the connotation of pain. There's so many different kinds of loneliness. The loneliness of illness, for example. The ill and the well are two separate worlds, aren't they? And there doesn't seem to be any congress between them. I can remember my husband Ad saying that in his uh, experience with cancer. I have never been ill or incapacitated 
to any great degree. And he said to me, you know, it's a different world. He said, you, you can't even enter into my world. I was doing my best to do that, but I couldn't do it. I had never been there. And I cannot say to a person who is seriously ill, I know just what you're going through. So there are many kinds of loneliness that I don't claim to know anything about. The loneliness of divorce, the loneliness that came through on the telephone one night late. An unknown voice, she said, is this Elizabeth Elliot? And I said, yes, and she started to cry. And she started then to tell me that she had just been told that she had an incurable disease which would eventually kill her. But it would not kill her before a very long and painful process of disintegration. And her question, of course, was, why would God allow this to happen to me? Well, could I answer that in words of one syllable? Could I possibly speak to her need? And she felt cut off. She said, what good am I going to be flat on my back? I'm going to be useless. I'm going to be cast aside. Why would God do a thing like this to me? Well, all I could do was take her back to the cross of Jesus Christ and tell her the old, old story. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And there are people who will respond to words like that with anger and bitterness and resentment. Well, if God's so loving, why is a thing like this happening to me? If God loves me, why am I suffering loneliness? And what can I say? Well, I can't say I know exactly what you're going through, but I can say that I know the one who knows. And when I received word that my first husband was missing, immediately the Lord brought to my mind the words from Isaiah 43, verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God. Now, loneliness is a wilderness. And as the title of the subtitle of my book puts it, it can be a wilderness, and it can also be a pathway to God. And when I think of wildernesses, I think of Jesus and his experience. If you're asking, is there anyone out there who really knows how I feel? Is there anyone who has been exactly where I've been, who can enter in 100% to my experience of loneliness? I'm here to say, yes, there is one. You know that immediately after Jesus was baptized, he was led by the Holy Spirit, and here's a mystery, led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now think about that. Imagine just after his baptism where God had validated who Jesus was by the voice that came from heaven when he said, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Then he was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And you remember that the devil came along with three kinds of temptation. Jesus was there alone, it says, with 
the wild beasts. And I can remember when I was a little child reading that and thinking that's kind of scary to be out in the wilderness with the wild beasts. But as I've grown older and thought about my tremendous love for animals and the fact that the animals are sinless creatures and they're doing the will of God just by being what they are, I have a sneaking suspicion that the animals were a comfort to Jesus. And there were also angels there, but they did not protect him from Satan's temptation. And Satan came along with these three temptations. One, for the satisfaction of physical desire. If you're the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread, because he knew that Jesus was hungry. hungry. He hadn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. So it was a temptation to perform a miracle for his own satisfaction, satisfaction of his physical desire. And then immunity from danger. He said, cast yourself down off this pinnacle, and he shall give his angels charge over thee. Satan actually quoted scripture. And then the third thing was, if you'll bow down and serve me and worship me, then I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And I can only believe that Satan did have the power to give Jesus those kingdoms. And in every case, Jesus met the temptation of Satan by saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. And so he was able to overcome the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. There's a sense in which the temptation to Jesus to fall down and worship Satan carried a very cheap cost. All he had to do was to perform a few little miracles and then fall down and worship Satan. It didn't even need to be sincere, did it? But the price of obedience to his father was high. The price of obedience to his father was the cross. And that's what I, what I said. I would take you back to that cross. Jesus had been through the wilderness. He had experienced what you and I experience in the way of temptation, in the, the experience of loneliness, and he had been victorious. I speak to those in physical isolation, those in emotional isolation, spiritual isolation, people who experience divorce, something that I know nothing about, or disease, death, that I know a little bit about, and the loneliness of misunderstanding. I say to you that this experience of a wilderness can be a pathway to God. Let me read to you from Hebrews, the second chapter. It tells me that Jesus has been through it. Verse 16, it is not angels, mark you, that he takes to himself, but the sons of Abraham, that's you and me. And therefore he had to be made like these brothers of his in every way, so that he might be merciful and faithful as their high priest before God to expiate the sins of the people. For since he himself has passed through the test of suffering, he is able to help those 
who are meeting their test now. Jesus had to learn obedience by the things which he suffered. Now there is a little clue there. If Jesus himself, who was perfect, had to learn obedience by the things which he suffered, shouldn't you and I, as fallible and sinful human beings, have some lessons to learn through the experience of loneliness? Think of the fact that Jesus was forsaken by all twelve of the disciples in the hour of his extremity. You remember that he had prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And then his second prayer was, if it is not possible, nevertheless, not what you want, not what I want, Lord, but what you want. And then almost immediately after that, he said, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of evil men. Now we're up against mystery again, aren't we? Not only the mystery of the Spirit of God leading him into the wilderness to be tempted, but the will of God allowing his own beloved Son to be put into the hands of evil men. And he did that for you and me. So when I speak of the mystery of suffering, particularly the mystery of loneliness, I speak of one who knows more about it than any of the rest of us. And as he hung there on the cross, you remember that his last, next to the last words were, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was forsaken for the sake of you and me. So that's where we go for an answer, for the stilling of our questions. We've talked about the fact that loneliness is a human condition. It seems to be a generational condition, and certainly all of us have experienced it in some form as a personal condition. The answers the remedies that the world is offering are far from helpful, far from permanent, like an aspirin. They offer temporary relief. But if we go back to the cross, back to the one who holds the whole world in his hands, and he says, when you pass through the waters or through that wilderness, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.